Unless the kids are exiting here, I just have a, a few announcements for you. Um, in the back table, there are, are piles there for each of you families. So we've got a Christmas card here to save uh, postage, so you can um, pick up your packet back there. It's a big stack uh, of things. Um, also, Adriana told me there's a big stack of CDs, um, extra copies of messages made. You can take those free, stock your library, give them out, you know, whatever, whatever helps for you. That would be fine. Also, just want to alert you of uh, next... Um, New Year's Eve, a celebration at the home of uh, Karen Gusky, Karen and uh, Phil. Uh, just a time. It's for uh, adults only, um, so it's not for kids. So find babysitters. If you can do that, come. It'll be a great time. We're going to pray in the New Year. A uh, time of, of worship there will be, be a great time. Well, let me pray before I open my message. <clears throat> Lord, I pray. <clears throat> this Christmas season that we would see Jesus, all His glory and splendor and majesty. Though come as a babe, yet to be a day when He comes in the clouds. Though humble now, coming for a lamb, like a lamb, He will come as a lion. Though as He enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, He will come back on a white horse. Though having eyes which tire easily, He will come back eyes of flame of fire. Lord, I pray that You would be with us here this morning. I'll just anoint my message to encourage us in the realities of Christmas and cause us to focus our heart and attention towards Jesus this Christmas season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, traditions come in all shapes and sizes. Some are good traditions and some are bad traditions, there are strongly held traditions, there are weakly held traditions, there are newly formed traditions in the making, and there are traditions that nobody understands. The Bible speaks of traditions in several different ways. Paul told those in Thessalonica of the good traditions they had received. You might be surprised to know this, but it does speak about traditions. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul said, So then, brethren, stand firm. And hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth, or by letter from us. When you think about those traditions, they're traditions of Christ that's been handed on from generation to generation. That's what Paul is talking about here. In the first generation, he was there. Just the, the things that have been handed on. Paradosis is the word for tradition. What has been handed down. On the other hand, traditions are sometimes spoken badly in the Scriptures. Jesus one time rebuked the Pharisees for the ways that they held their own man-made traditions. They were washing their hands in a specific way in which they held their traditions. Before they would eat, they would uh, make sure that they washed their hands so they were perfectly clear before they cleaned, before they ate. And Jesus rebuked them saying, Why do you transgress the commandment of God to keep the, for the sake of your tradition is what He said. They, they taught us doctrines, the precepts of men. They held their traditions too highly is what He said and you had neglected the Word of God. And, and you know, there are many un- traditions that are, quite frankly, misunderstood. They're, they're not even understood at all. I've had several conversations with Phil Gusky before in the past where he talked about the story about how his mother, whenever she would put the, the ham in the oven to cook it for Christmas, she'd always cut off the back of the ham. And that's what she always did. She always cut off the back of the ham and 
And Phil has told me that um, she did this always. And Phil questioned her one time. said, Mom, why do we cut off the back of the ham? And, and what would she say, Phil? That's just my grandma always did it. That's why grandma always did it. It's the way, the way you're supposed to uh, cook the ham. And uh, so one day Phil said he had an opportunity to talk with his grandmother and said, Grandma, why, why, why do we do that? And what would she say, Phil? Yeah, so my oven's so large, I've got to cut it off and I can't put it in there. But yet, the, so mom had a bigger oven, still the tradition held that she still cut it off because that's what you always do. And so many times, traditions are this way. I start doing them, and we don't realize what, what they're about. Uh, another example is from my undergraduate school, Knox College. When I was there at Knox, <laughs> my Knox College sweatshirt, our, our, uh, our mascot was... The Siwash. You can see it there. It says the old Siwash. We were the Siwash. Lots of you, I even look at your eyes, you're like, what's a Siwash? Well, while I was in Knox, I got lots of questions that way. What is a Siwash? And quite frankly, I didn't really know myself, but I had heard somebody say it's like an Indian savage. And so that's what I would tell people. Well, it's it's like an Indian savage. They'd say, oh, okay. (laughs) And kind of go on their way. Well, a few years after I graduated, someone did some research into figuring out what exactly a Siwash was, and they found, indeed it was, an Indian savage, but found that it was a very derogatory word. And so, even though we didn't know what it meant, so it wasn't necessarily, because it had derogatory connotations in the past, in the spirit of political correctness that pervades our day and age, they have changed the name of the Siwash now. Now Knox College is the Prairie Fire However, however, with the athletic group, um, you know, it, it is still, it's the old Siwash slash Prairie Fire Athletic Club. And so that's why I have my old Siwash. I'm proud to be a, a Siwash, what it was. But it's interesting that there was this tradition and that we had no idea what exactly it was. Well, we had an idea, but there was kind of conjecture. Um, it was right, but we had this Siwash. You know, it's not like we had this Indian mascot. We had like zero mascot. I mean, if anything, we had this big purple blob maybe for a mascot. We didn't have anything because we didn't really know. But it was a tradition handed on down and down. We didn't know. And I just think that with Christmas, there are many who celebrate Christmas who have no idea of what these traditions we celebrate mean. And this morning, we are looking at Christmas traditions. And the premise of my message today is that Jesus is better than Christmas traditions. Jesus is the whole point of these traditions. In all of our traditions, we ought to point them to Jesus. Now, before we think about these traditions, and I'm not sure how many we'll talk about today, I need to remind you of what took place that Christian Christmas morning 2,000 years ago because without, without the reality of Christmas, a genuine Christmas, what it is in our mind, our traditions would be meaningless anyway. And so if they say they point to Jesus, let's really think about Jesus this morning And I want to spend some time here this morning in Galatians chapter 4. It's a small text, two verses that, you know, is a Christmas text in many ways, but it is a a text that speaks of the realities of the gospel. Two verses, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. And before, before I actually read those verses, I want to talk to the kids here a little bit. Kids, you guys know what's coming up here soon? Yeah, what's coming up? Christmas, do you, do you all know how many days until Christmas? Nathan, how many days? Four days until Christmas. Have you been counting them down? Actually, four, four. One, two, three, four. Five days until Christmas, right? Okay, well, 
you, you, maybe your dad can help you with some math. But anyway, how many of you have been counting down the days toward Christmas? I know the kids. Adults, how many of you have been counting down the days toward Christmas? Sometimes we use Advent calendars, and uh, I remember. We didn't have it up this year. That's okay. We had this uh, felt cloth thing, and it was Jesus and Joseph and Mary working their way to Bethlehem. And they kind of, the kids were always diligent about moving this, this little flannel graph kind of thing. And they, they knew when it was getting close to Christmas, and they knew how many days it was. And I remember as a child, eagerly anticipating the Christmas day. And in fact, um, on Christmas Eve, kids, have any of you had problems sleeping? Dylan, do you have problems sleeping on Christmas Eve? No? Some of you do? Who does? Who can, who can relate with me? Because I know that when I was a child, I had tremendous difficulties sleeping Christmas Eve. My dad can, maybe he doesn't remember. <laughs> That's what happens when you get older. You don't remember so many things. But anyway, I, uh, I would always have problems sleeping on Christmas Eve, just anticipating, knowing that presents are coming in the morning, and I didn't know what was going to happen, and um, just longing for that day. So kids, I can relate to you if you have problems sleeping this Thursday night. As we anticipate and wait for Christmas to come, I remember telling my grandmother on several occasions, I said, Grandma, I can't wait for Christmas. And she always replied to me, this is a pattern of, she said, but I bet you will. And she was right. I have waited many, many Christmases, and I have waited in this one. And kids, you too, you will wait for these Christmases. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that God waited for Christmas. Jesus Himself waited for that Christmas day to come. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says this, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that that we might receive the adoption as sons. You know, this is really God's perspective of Christmas. I mean, 2,000 years ago seems maybe a long time for us, and it, it was. But as long ago as 2,000 years is for us, it was longer in preparing for that day. That first Christmas night was planned by God long before it ever came to pass. And that's what it says, when the fullness of time came. We have December 25th on our calendar for Christmas Day, but God had this day in his mind, on his calendar, when Christmas time would come. And he waited a long time for that day because the coming of Jesus into the flesh was really the culmination of events that God had planned and predestined long before the world ever came to be. See, when God created the world, he knew full well that we would fall into sin and face judgment. He knew full well that we needed a Savior in order to live in communion with him. And it's at that point that the Father and the Son had an inter-Trinitarian conversation with each other of some type. I'm not sure how exactly they did, but the Father asked the Son, I want to send you to go and redeem people so that they can be with us, so you can have a bride. Do you want to do that? Do you want to go and give your life as a ransom for many? And Jesus, of course, in submission to the Father, said yes, but Jesus knew full well what that meant. It meant that He would be despised. It meant that Jesus would be rejected, that He would be forsaken of men, that He would be filled with sorrows and grief. He knew, Jesus did, that He would be oppressed and afflicted and that He would die a painful and shameful death for the sins of others. 
But he knew also of the glories that awaited him on the other side. He knew that he would bring many sons to glory. He knew that his praise would fill eternity. He knew that he would get for himself a bride. And his disciples would see his glory and worship him. And so Jesus said, yes, I'll go. And so the Father sent him to earth. But it wasn't right away that the Father sent him to earth. It took some time. It was when the fullness of time came, Galatians 4. It wasn't in the days of Adam and Eve. No, God would bring in an entire multitude to worship Him in heaven. It wasn't in the days of Noah. Though there were multitudes of people on the earth at that time, that was a time not for saving acts, but for the judging acts. Jesus had to wait. He had to wait until God would call a nation by His grace to Himself so He might show forth His his loving kindness again and again to them as they turned away His loving kindness. They turned away His loving kindness to them. Just God showing His loving kindness to the Jews to whom He came to save. It all started with Abraham. 2,000 years before Jesus came started the, the root, the seed of this nation that God raised up, this great and mighty nation. And Jesus still had to wait. He had to wait for for God to give Israel a law so they would see and understand how it is that they need to act. They need to see their sin because no one ever lived perfectly, but then Jesus was going to come and live perfectly. Jesus had to wait until the law came so He could describe what a sacrifice is. So when Jesus came, they would fully understand His death upon the cross as a sacrifice. Jesus had to wait until the law came so so the law would explain the, the priesthood of Jesus and how He is our great and high priest as Hebrews speaks about so much and that Jesus is the better priest than any priest that has ever lived. And so, so think about it. when God established the law, it, it wasn't so as to try to create a people that would live perfectly. It was to teach at this time when Jesus would come. Jesus didn't come and say, oh yeah, I'm a sacrifice. No, God said He's going to be a sacrifice and you need to learn a thing or two about sacrifices. And so throughout the centuries... That they came to pass, it was the law that taught of, of a perfect life, that taught of sacrifice, that taught of a priest. But Jesus still had to wait. He had to wait for Israel to come into the kingdom stage so that, so that they could have a king, so that Jesus could be the perfect king. David was good, but he wasn't the perfect king. But Jesus would be that perfect king. But even after they had a king, and even they had kingdoms, um, we're, we're working about Jesus still had to wait because he had to wait for the prophets to announce and tell of everything that Jesus was coming. Isaiah described a Savior like this, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon His shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. See, Jesus had to wait until Isaiah could tell the people that the Messiah would come and rule and reign and be a a governor. Jeremiah. He had to wait for Jeremiah to describe how different it's going to be for the days of Israel in those days. Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when they took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord. I put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, everyone his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. I'll be merciful to their iniquities and their sins. I will remember no more. 
Jeremiah had to describe what, what, what the dawning of the Messiah would be like. So that they would understand when the, when the king, when their Savior would come, that He would come and save them and redeem them and give them new hearts and new minds to serve Him. But Jesus couldn't come yet. Micah had to tell Israel where the Savior would be born so that indeed they could confirm that this is their Savior, the Messiah. Micah 5.2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. And even there you get the sense that just from long ago are the goings forth of Jesus. And He's going to be born here in Bethlehem. So you wait and you look there for Him the tribe of David. But he couldn't come yet because Malachi had to tell Israel that a forerunner was coming. Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there's going to come one before Jesus came and that was John the Baptist, of course, who would come. And Daniel even had to tell Israel when the Savior would be born. So then you're to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 483 years, prophetical years, until the Messiah would be born. So they had to say when this Messiah would come. And Jesus had to wait until that time. And I think, children, it was a difficult wait for Him. I think He was anxious to come. Ready to come ready to buy and purchase for himself a bride at the cost of his life. He was eagerly waiting that day, just like you children wait for that Christmas day. And it finally came, which is what verse 4 says, in the fullness of time is when it came. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. This verse tells us when Jesus came. He came when the time was right. It tells us how Jesus came. He came as a Son born of a woman, born under the law. See, Jesus didn't come as we might have expected Him to come. We would expect the Savior to come with great pomp and circumstance, with great, great trumpets announcing the, the incoming of the King. We would expect Him to come as cl- in clouds, which He will someday, which the prophets prophesied, but that was not His first coming. His first coming was clouded with obscurity. He was born in a small town south of Jerusalem amidst no fanfare. And even we might think about the big fanfare, about all the magi coming and, and showering with gifts. Well, in actuality, the, the, uh, the magi actually came to a house where Jesus was, perhaps even a year after Jesus was born. So it's not like even His birth was so, so glorious in many ways. He was born in a barn. Very few around. Jesus... God of the universe became a helpless baby, born of a woman with flesh and blood like every single one of us. Learned to walk, learned to talk, stumbled, fell, mixed up his words. He looked like any, any one of us. There's nothing particularly special about his appearance. You wouldn't be able to pick him out of the crowd. The only reason the Magi were able to identify him is because of the star that came that shone over the house where Jesus was, divinely guiding them there. Now, the wonder of Christmas is this, is that Jesus is God. He is the God of the universe, the One who created all things. The One God came in the form of a baby. How it is that God could do that, I don't know. I don't know. How the sovereign God of the universe came into creation 
took on flesh and blood. I, I don't know. It's like us drawing a painting and then jumping into that painting. Maybe you remember Mary Poppins and Bert was there on the sidewalk and he's writing his paintings. And then with the magic of Mary Poppins, they jumped into the painting. Well, that's what Jesus did. He, he created the world and then He jumped into the world. And how? I don't know. It's a mystery. All we can do is marvel at it and ponder at it. Michael Card wrote a hymn. It's expressed it well. Maybe you know it. It says, When the Father wanted to show the love He wanted us to know, He sent His only Son and so became a holy embryo. Oh, that is the mystery. More than you can see. Give up your pondering and fall down on your knees. As fiction as fantastic and wild, a mother made by her own child, a hope the babe who cried was God incarnate and man deified. That is the mystery. More than you can see. Give up your pondering and fall down on your knees. Because the fall did devastate and the Creator must now recreate. And so, to take our sin, He was made like us so we could be made like Him. That is the mystery. More than you can see. Give up your pondering and fall on your knees. That's our call this morning, really. Is to give up our pondering and just fall on our knees and worship Jesus. God doesn't call us to know all the mysteries. He doesn't call us to explain how it all worked out. He doesn't expect us to know the biology and the metaphysics behind the Incarnation. He merely calls us to come into His presence as a worshiper. He redeemed us to worship. In fact, that's what verse 5 says, the purpose of His coming, so that He might redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. See, God came to purchase us out of slavery and bring us into His family. Previously in Galatians 3, Paul talked about how in Christ we aren't slaves any longer. We are sons. And that's what God has done. God has become one of us so that we might become one with Him. He came to wipe away our sins, to settle our debts, that we might be called children of God. What great love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. I think it's J.I. Packer who says in verse 5 that adoption is the highest privilege of the Gospel. I mean, yes, justification perhaps is the most important in terms of our sins are forgiven, but adoption is the highest privilege we have. That, that it's not like God brings us into heaven in second-rate manner. No, He brings us in as sons. That we are, we are His sons. Jesus... And the manger is a picture of the love of God. It's the men saying, the love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless, how strong. And there's no greater reality really in the universe ought to thrill our souls. And, and, and our Christmas traditions ought to cause us really to bow our knees to this reality. Through Jesus Christ, we are adopted into God's family with all the blessings bestowed on us as His children. Brought in right there. No, tradition, no Christmas tradition is better than this. They all point to that. And there is something also about Christmas tradition that should cause us really to, to focus upon the great realities of Jesus. Take your hymnals and open them to hymn number 367. We don't look at our hymnals very often. 
I'm sorry, 267. <clears throat> this is where our, our Christmas traditions ought to take us. But the fact that so much is around us that the people are just missing, they, they miss the reality. Um, is the reason my message comes this morning. But this hymn here was written by Henry Longfellow, who lived during the war, days of the Civil War, I believe. And uh, he wrote this hymn in the midst of the Civil War, thinking about the bells of Christmas Day. You know, we have all this tradition and, and the bells ringing. He said, stanza one, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, good will to men. So think about it. He's in the midst of the Civil War, atrocities, difficulties all around. He hears these bells and people are singing, peace on earth, good will to men. I thought, stanza two, how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the thundering song of peace on earth, good will to man. I mean, just going along and just the traditions of what they did. And then he thought about the reality, though, of, of the Civil War. And he said in verse 3, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. Because the realities of the Civil War is difficult. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You see what he's doing? He's taking the tradition and, and he's really thinking about what it means. And peace on earth, there's not peace now. And people as they sing this are mocking it. And I think in many ways with so many Christian, Christmas traditions out there, lots of people are mocking what they sing. Secular people, oh come let us adore Him. They sing with their hearts, with their, with their mouths. But they're not adoring Him. They're not worshiping Him. But, but I want you to see what Longfellow is doing. He's taking the Christmas traditions and then just wrestling with them because it's not the reality. And then verse 4 comes the hope. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth He sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And His hope is there that the wrong will fail and that the right will prevail when there will be genuine peace upon the earth as was promised in Isaiah chapter 9 that I read earlier. Then ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, good will to men. And I just hope this Christmas season, just you do what Longfellow did in terms of just, just take our traditions, take the things we say, take the things that we decorate with, take the things we see, and just direct them towards Christ and just think about the realities. And there he wrestled with the realities of the Civil War. That we might wrestle with the realities of what's really taking place. Because Christmas speaks so much better than just traditions. It speaks of Jesus. Well, let me get to a few points just uh, just to talk to you about this. First of all, Jesus is better than Christmas gifts. He's better than Christmas gifts. Kids, this might be difficult for you. Jesus is better than Christmas gifts. When we think about Christmas, giving gifts often comes into our mind. I, maybe you've had a, a conversation like this with someone. Someone asks you, are you ready for Christmas? Have you heard that before? Are you ready for Christmas? What do they mean by that? Have you bought all your gifts yet? Do you have everything that you're going to get? Are you ready? Because so, people so equate Christmas with 
gift-giving. And that's not, that's not so bad. In fact, it's, it's, it's good. Jesus said Himself, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Giving is an opportunity to, to express our, our care and concern and, and love for others. It's a time of giving gifts. It's been right so from the start. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. This is the Magi who's coming here from the east. They came looking for the Christ and following His star from the east. They came to worship Jesus. And initially they arrived in Jerusalem, but they said, where is the Christ to be born? Where is the King of the Jews? They said, down in Bethlehem. So they went down to Bethlehem. And then in verse 9, we pick up the story. After hearing the King, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceeding with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Here, Mary and Joseph were presented with gifts from these magi. Uh, I believe these are sovereign gifts that God had brought to help Mary and Joseph. Oh, we know about these magi. They were noblemen from the east someplace, Persia, maybe India. Their journey to Bethlehem lasted months, probably. It came as a great sacrifice to them. Imagine taking a month-long trip. Imagine taking a month-long trip. It cost them a lot. But it came miraculously. They followed this miraculous star. Now, normally you can't follow a star in the sky very easily. I mean, you look up at the star in the sky and you say, okay, well, we're going to follow that one. It's, kind of, it's, it's sort of difficult. You can go somewhat, but you just kind of keep going that way because that's where the direction always is. And yet there was something special about this star that actually came and stood over the place where the child was. There was over this house where the star was. Now, most stars aren't like... All stars aren't like that. And many believe that this is an appearance, a special, miraculous appearance of the glory of God that led them to Jesus that shined right over the house where Jesus was. So they might come in and find and find Him. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. So it ought to be our response on Christmas Day too. But what they do? They, they gave gifts to Him. And it was probably these gifts that helped Mary and Joseph fund their flight to Egypt. They were poor people. When, when they offered Jesus up in the temple, they offered Him up with uh, turtle doves, with birds, because they couldn't afford the more expensive goats, bulls, probably. In some measure, this then began the tradition of giving gifts at Christmas time. Or maybe it legitimatized it. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But there is giving gifts. It's appropriate at Christmas time. And, and we ought not to stop giving gifts. The Bible speaks much about giving. God's people are to be open-handed. That's who we ought to be. What's mine is yours, I will give. When Jesus says, someone asks of you, you give. They ask to you give. Don't give them just your cloak. Give them your tunic also. We don't need to hold tightly the things here upon this earth because... This world is not our home. We have resources to give and benefit for others. And so, in your giving, I, I would encourage you to give. Be generous. But re- remember some things. Don't give what you can't afford. 
Too many in this country feel the pull to, to give, and they what a bizarre thing, they go in debt so as to give to others. I don't think you should give beyond your means. It's called voluntary slavery. The borrower becomes a lender's slave. Now, that, that, that doesn't mean you should read a point, well, I, don't have any, I can't give. What it means is why don't you live well below your means so you can give. To aim for that, church people, is to, to live below your means so that you can give. Give to others. Give your kids. Give the church. Give the ministries. Just help. We need to be those who give. But in our, our giving this Christmas season, as gifts will be given and wrapped, use them to show your love towards one another, but use them also to direct their attention to the greatest gift. I'm giving this to you because I've received the greater gift, which is Jesus God showed His love to us and that He gave His gift to His only begotten Son. We merely need to believe in Him. We receive the greatest gift of all is eternal life. And, and I say all of, all of Christianity is wrapped up in gift giving. Jesus was a gift. Our salvation is a gift. Right? It's by grace you've been saved, not of works, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. See, God gives us salvation. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The end of Revelation, the the, the call is that the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And that is how we come to God. We come to God totally on a gift that He gives to us, and we just merely come and take without cost. That's why Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 9, he says, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. In Jesus Christ. So in our giving gifts, let's remember the gift of Christ. Thereby redeem our traditions because the greatest gift is better than the tradition of giving gifts. I mean, the, the world is about giving gifts. Everyone does. A lot. It's what makes retailers go. In fact, I've had a conversation recently with somebody uh, at a store uh, just a couple of days ago, you said, where they were fearful of, oh, you know, I feel so sorry for the stores out east because of all the big storms coming because this weekend is such a big weekend for them to get them in the black through the year because people are so much into gifts. But let's, let's take our gifts and direct them, people, to Jesus as we give. Well, Jesus is better than Christmas gifts. He's better than Christmas trees. Christmas trees are all over the place. Now, this one's not lit. Should be lit. Tim, you told me you're going to light it. You forgot. Huh? All right. Well, pretend it's lit. Our, our, our culture is saturated with Christmas trees. You see them all around. You see them in shopping malls, city squares, front of churches. The White House is a Christmas tree. Almost any public place you can imagine, there are Christmas trees. But they're also in homes. How many of you have Christmas trees in your homes? Most of you. Not everyone. You know, I can't remember a time ever not having a tree in our home. Sometimes it may have been small, but at least there was something there. And in many ways, the Christmas tree is the symbol of Christmas. Yes. I mean, the Christmas tree is what symbolizes Christmas in many ways. Many have asked, even I had a, a child ask me in preparation for this message, when, was, when did they start using the Christmas tree? And best I can tell, 1600s, about time of the Reformation, practice of the Christmas tree started coming. So it's not, a, it's not a biblical tradition in any way. It's just something that just started coming. It was spread throughout all Eastern Europe. By the 19th century, it was prominent through all Europe and Asia. 
But it was condemned by the church in America in the early days because of its alleged pagan connotations. It wasn't, as best my research could tell, it wasn't until the 1850s that someone (gasps) put a Christmas tree in front of a church. Gasp. The culture condemned him. People didn't, it was just, it was just so much against the culture. Today it's different. But back then they argued that it was an idol. And we could easily argue that it is an idol. We take it from a forest. We cover it with lights and ornaments, garlands and tinsels. We place our offerings underneath it, sit around it, right? We worship this God. We sing this song, O Christmas tree, O Christmas tree, your branches green delight us. They're green when summer days are bright. They're green when winter snow is white. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, your branches green delight us. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, you give us so much pleasure. How oft at Christmas tide the sight of green fir tree gives us delight. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, you give us so much pleasure. Think about the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 10, 3 and 4. The customs of the people are a delusion. Because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold and fasten it with nails with hammers so that it will not totter. Sounds like a Christmas tree, right? But Jeremiah was not describing Christmas trees, describing the idols of the day. Cutting down a tree in the forest, decorating it, putting gold on it and tinsel on it, securing it and setting it up there to worship. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to abandon our Christmas trees. I'm saying that we ought to redeem them. A Christmas tree can provide a family with a great, wholesome, memorable experience. December afternoon, a family goes... Have I lost my mic there? I'll just do this. December afternoon, a family goes to a tree farm, takes a saw into a forest, sizes up the tree they want, and then makes the kill. And they they take the tree and mount it on top of their car. They bring it home, decorate it in a festive environment. Cedar smells provide aroma in the house. And and the ornaments provide special family memory. That's a very profitable, fun exercise. There's nothing wrong with that exercise at all. It can be a good memory to bring the family together. Furthermore, there are ways in which you can redeem the Christmas tree. If you take your ornaments and, and direct them to Jesus. I know that Avon has done this very well with our family in the past, done, done great things. I remember one time she said some uh, ornaments made of hymns kind of rolled up and oh, like old parchment paper all around. So we just see the Christmas tree, we look at it closely, and it has hymns there. Ornaments containing the names of Christ. I remember one time we had a Christmas tree that just had big, big letters across it said, Glory to God in the highest. Just proclaiming just what is true about the Christmas season. And we can redeem our Christmas ornaments. It's Noel Piper had a conversation with her daughter, Talitha. She said, Mom, I have a tiny disco ball to hang on the Jesus tree. And um, Noel said wisely, Now, before you do that, you need to tell me how the disco ball relates to Jesus. And so Talitha said, Hmm, well, Jesus is the light of the world and He shines all around. And Noel said, good. And he's also multifaceted, so there's always more to learn about his glories. You see what mom was doing there with the child? With Talitha was, was taking her and showing her of, of Jesus in the tree and just, just directing the, uh, the focus of an ornament upon Jesus. Maybe that would be a good thing. You decorate your tree with your kids. Okay, how does this remind us of Jesus? Or how does this show us of Jesus? 
Yep, I'm on here. It's a way we can redeem our Christmas tree by our decorations. And should you practice, be practice be that you open gifts that are around the tree. Man, I encourage you just to use that to point to Jesus. You know, maybe you read the Christmas story before you open gifts whenever you do. Maybe you have a, a time where you, you share with one another thinking about Jesus. Maybe you pray opening gifts. Maybe you have brothers and sisters and mom and dad share testimonies about what Jesus has done in your life. Redeeming that time, directing it towards Christ. Maybe you can use that time around the Christmas tree to reflect upon another tree. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Just before what we had read earlier in Galatians chapter 4, we read that Christ redeemed us. Galatians 3.13 He redeemed us from the curse of a law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It's the greatest reality of the Christmas story. There would be a day when, when this little baby Jesus would hang on another tree. He would hang like a Christmas ornament. Well, not quite like a Christmas ornament, but Jesus would, would hang on a tree as a sacrifice. And the Old Covenant declared a curse upon anyone who hung on a tree. And Jesus then took that curse upon Himself so that the curse might not come upon us. And so this Christmas year, maybe you think about Christmas, think about a Christmas tree. Think about the Calvary tree, which the Prince of Glory died I know that uh, even when I pulled that story from Noelle Piper and her daughter Talitha, they have what they call a, a Jesus tree. So it's like a big cross, and they decorate this cross. It's a good practice for some of us to follow. That'd be great. Just reflecting upon a Christmas tree and bringing it to Jesus, because Jesus is better than Christmas trees. How about this? Number three, Jesus is better than Christmas cards. Uh, one of the things that really encouraged me about Christmas is the whole... In fact, in our culture, we have, um, we have this, this, this climate and this accepted practice of sending Christmas cards to each other. Now, not everyone, everyone does this, but many do. And um, it's very accepted. It is a commonly accepted practice for people to receive one piece of correspondence from us all year. You know, you haven't heard from Aunt Betsy, your great Aunt Betsy, twice removed. But Christmas time, sure enough, here comes this letter. And what a great opportunity for us, people of faith, to use it as an opportunity for the gospel to just year after year after year just drip Christ and drip the gospel into people's homes. Because they're expecting a letter from us, it would be totally acceptable to have a letter sent from us, and so you can just send it to them. Many times, Christmas letters just come and tell what's most important to people. It's their kids and their activities and things that are involved in that. I would just encourage you, as believers in Christ, to make known to those you send your letters to the most important thing in your life. Yes, kids are important, yes. And family changes, yes, those are important. But Jesus ought to be the most important. So work hard at that. It's a great opportunity for the Gospel. Jesus said you're lights of the world, so let your light shine in that. It doesn't mean that every year it's got to be a hardcore Gospel presentation, but they ought to just know that year after year, year after year, you're just going to lift up Jesus in the the flavor of the things that you have. I mean, think about your Christmas list. If you send Christmas letters out, I know of ours. I was thinking through ours. We have, ours, you can break it up about a third. You know, maybe a third has people here in the church, which you all have cards from us. 
you can see how Christ-centered our card is this year. It's okay. It's been, I think it's been more Christ-centered in years past, but that's okay. It's good. It's got pictures of our kids. I think it's good. It says, have a Christ-centered Christmas. So it's far beyond just Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. He's really trying to focus things on Christ we did this year. Um, but that's a third of it is you all. About a third of it is also family. You know, we probably send to about this many family, I'm guessing. Um, many of whom are not Christians. We use this as an opportunity to just tell them about the church, about Christ, about what God's doing in our life. And then about a third of them are probably friends. Some of them, are, most of them probably are believers, but there are some non-believers we still keep up with, you know, and they just get dripped each year with a, a drip of the gospel they hear. And we consider it a great opportunity. And Paul told those in Rome, do not be ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the power of God for salvation for those who believe. And so use your Christmas cards for an opportunity of the gospel because Jesus is better than Christmas cards. And what the world uses as a tradition, let's use it and point to Jesus. It is the best greeting that we can give, the message of Christ coming into the world. Well, Jesus is better than Christmas gifts. He's better than Christmas trees. better than Christmas cards. He's also better than family gatherings. And one of the great things about Christmas is time for family. It's a wonderful time for family. Um, Schools are off. Many businesses provide several holidays over the Christmas season. Some have extended holidays. Sometimes plants shut down between uh, Christmas and New Year's. Lots of Walmart shuts down one day of the year. Betty, what day is that? It's Christmas Day. Shut down. Boy, if Walmart shuts down, that means there's something important going on. I love the sign on Hobby Lobby that says, you know, close Sunday so to free up our families for families and worship or something like that. And Christmas is a day. It is a time of family gatherings. I mean, even Vaughn and I had a conversation with a non-Christian this past week, and uh, he's um, just getting with his family. But always, you know, people just everywhere, all just family naturally comes together at Christmas time which is good. Sometimes people have lots of different gatherings they do Christmas together. They have a gathering here and a gathering there and a gathering there and a gathering there. Just all types of family gatherings. And all this, I say, wonderful. It is good. It is good and profitable. It's healthy for you. It's healthy for our nation to have strong family ties. And in that I can do nothing but rejoice. But I would say this, though, this Christmas season, realize that Jesus is better than family gatherings. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. In Mark 3, we see Jesus giving a perspective of family that ought to guide us for the Christmas season. We read in verse 20 that Jesus came home after selecting His disciples. He came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent they could not even eat a meal. And when His own people heard of it, they went out to take custody of Him for they were saying, He's lost His senses. He is crazy. Here he is. He's coming back to his hometown and he's got all these people. We know him. He's just the kid Jesus. And all that. He has gone crazy. The scribes are in the mix as well. They think he's so crazy. He's demon-possessed, they say in verse 22. He's possessed by Beelzebul and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And so here's this crowd and he's teaching them. And it's, it's, it's sort of like a church assembly except it's in a, it's in a home and he's crowded and he's teaching them. And then we see the family of Jesus coming in verse 31. His mother and his brother arrived, and I think they think the same thing of Jesus. I think they think he's crazy. 
you can, you can detect that sometimes from the Gospels where his brothers are mocking him about going up to the feast in John chapter 7. Are you going up? Huh? That's just a big crowd. And, and, and the reason I say that is because they were standing outside. They couldn't get in because it was so much. And uh, he was having this revival meeting. They're standing outside and they send a note to him and they, they said, you know, through the, the telephone, one says to another, says to another, says to another, says to another, and finally the message gets up to Jesus or maybe a note, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Now, you think the mother of Billy Graham at a Billy Graham crusade when he's in the midst of preaching to a crowd of people might, um, um, Billy, i got something to tell you. I think it's like not the right time to talk with Jesus, but I think they're trying to remove him from the situation because they thought he was maybe perhaps a, a bit off his rocker. And then Jesus put family in perspective. He said in verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, without a doubt, family is important, but look what Jesus does here. He puts the believing community as higher than family. Doesn't he do that here? Even than his own family. Later in the ministry, Jesus would put himself higher than family. He says, when the large crowds, Luke 14:26, when the large crowds are going along with them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He says, I am so much more worthy of all of your family that you would come and worship me before your family. So here, please hear these words about family gatherings that we cherish so much. Cherish them. Indeed, do that. But realize there's something better than family gatherings this Christmas season. Because any non-Christian gathers for family. But family gatherings are subservient to Jesus because Jesus is better. So redeem your family gatherings. Redeem them. You say, how do you do that? Well, you know, I appreciate my dad gave us a letter yesterday. I should have brought it. I forgot. It's just coming to mind right now. But um, I think yesterday you got it because it just showed up yesterday. Did you mail it or you just dropped it off? You were at our house yesterday. You just dropped it off. It just kind of appeared there. and said something to the Spirit like this. He says, family, we are looking to get together Christmas Eve. I'm looking forward to that. Talking about then the children are going to play some piano, make sure they're around for the, for the um, ready with the word so we all can engage in some singing and worship time there. And they says, I want you to prepare to think specifically about how God has blessed you this year, what you appreciate about Christ. It was a spirit. That's the letter. So, God, I thank you for that. You're preparing us to redeem our Christmas gathering together by focusing it upon Jesus. And I would encourage you to do that as well. As you gather together as a family, to the grace of you. Now, you might be gathering with a non-Christian family. That would be impossible. But if you have a Christian gathering, boy, make it a Christian gathering so any non-Christian in the home might say, wow, this, this is different. It's not a tradition in the world because they see Jesus as better than traditions, better than family gatherings. Okay? One last point before we leave here this morning. And I had to get to this one. Jesus is better than Santa Claus. Okay? Now, some of your kids knew that. Now, I need to be delicate here. You parents need to decide what you do and say with your children about Santa Claus. Um, let me just put it in perspective. I, uh, I read again this, an event that took place with John Piper and his young son, Karsten. 
This is when Karsten, I think he's his oldest, was, was really young. And they're walking down the hallways of a church at Christmas time. And one of the older ladies leaned down to squeeze his pink round cheeks and said, What did Santa bring you, young boy? And he was startled and his head jerked quickly up to his dad and said, Dad, doesn't she know? <laughs> I hope that was veiled enough for you. But kids, here's what you need to know today is that Jesus is better than Santa Claus. He's better than Santa Claus. I I could do no better than merely by reading something that's all over the internet. I gotta do a search for this. It's all over. It's a great little piece. It says Santa lives at the North Pole, but Jesus is everywhere. Santa rides in a sleigh, but Jesus rides in the wind and walks on water. Santa comes but once a year. And Jesus is an ever-present help. Santa fills your stockings with goodies. But Jesus supplies all your needs. Santa comes down your chimney uninvited, but Jesus stands at the door and knocks and enters your heart when invited. You have to wait in line to see Santa. But Jesus is close at the mention of His name. Santa lets you sit on His lap. But Jesus lets you rest in his arms. Santa doesn't know your name. All he can say is, Hey, little boy or girl, what's your name? Jesus knew our name before we were born. Now he doesn't know our name. He knows our address too. He knows our history and future. And he even knows how many hairs are on our heads. Santa has a belly like a bowl full of jelly. But Jesus has a heart of love. All Santa can offer is ho, ho, ho. Jesus offers health, hope, and help. Santa says, you better not cry. But Jesus says, cast all your cares on me, for I care for you. Santa's little helpers make toys. But Jesus makes new life, mends wounded hearts, repairs broken homes, and builds mansions. Santa may make you chuckle a bit, but Jesus gives you joy that's your strength. While Santa puts gifts under your tree, Jesus became our gift and died on a tree. And I'm sure we go on, we think about that better. The, uh, the premise of Jesus is better than the premise of Santa Claus. Santa Claus rewards according to works. If you're good or bad, he rewards that way, and of course everybody's good. In reality, Jesus, if he rewarded by works, we'd be sunk. But Jesus gives us salvation by grace, works in us, so that then we are judged according to our works, it says in Revelation, because of the works that God has done in us. That theology is way better. It gives us great hope because Jesus is better than Santa Claus. He's better than our Christmas traditions. And so this year for Christmas time, you think about worshiping the, the little baby in a manger. I just encourage you to, to use the traditions to point to Him who's the reason for the season. So let me pray and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, so many other traditions we could have looked at this morning that have come to my hearts and minds, we really could have looked at the Christmas carols, how Jesus points us there. I pray that this Christmas be filled with singing in our homes. Christmas music that so point 
towards Christ. We could have looked at Advent calendars which so anticipate the coming of Jesus and yet the Advent calendars isn't the thing, it's the actual coming that is the thing. I pray those things as we have, have read, perhaps we've read as families following some devotional pack or some books that we've read anticipating Jesus. May we use those to anticipate Christ. He is so much better than parties because there's going to be a bigger party in heaven. God, Jesus is better than all of our Christmas traditions. Help us this day to point and focus our attention to Him. May it be a Christ-centered, Christ-filled Christmas for all of us here at Rock Valley Bible Church. I pray that we would come with soft hearts to these things, to worship You, bow on bended knee, stop all of our pondering, but merely bow in worship and adoration. So bless us in these days and help us as we continue on. May this Friday be a time when we love and reflect upon Emmanuel, God with us, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. And you are dismissed. Children, I'll meet up with you right here, right now.